Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. This is episode 15 of the No Budget Filmmaking Podcast. I am Trevor L. Nelson. And I'm Alex Stark, and today we're we... Mm. Wow. Mm. Wow. Don't love that. Wow. <laughs> I think that might be your first screw-up in an intro. It Do, might be. Just go ahead. Go, go with it. We don't need to redo it. Go ahead. Or not. Did you freeze? Did you just melt? What's going on? Just wait and see how long it takes for you to start over again. I was going to say, you just start where you where you screwed up. I mean, There's no editing. Welcome to the No Budget Filmmaking Podcast, presented by Cinema Summit, a podcast about the art of making films, no matter how small the budget. And now, here are your hosts, Alex Dark and Trevor L. Nelson. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. This is episode 15 of the No Budget Filmmaking Podcast, and I am Trevor L. Nelson. And I'm Alex Stark, and today we are going to be talking with Jason Brubaker, who is currently the Vice President of Worldwide Sales at Distriber, and the founder of Filmmaking Stuff. Yeah, check out his website if you get the chance, filmmaker, filmmakingstuff.com. In addition, he's a contributing author of The Independence Guide to Film Distributors, and just an all-around distribution wizard, wizard. who has... You know, spoken all across the U.S. at festivals and expos and all sorts of stuff. So we have... Spoken much better than Alex can. A ton of questions for him. Yep, but yep, yep. before we get to that... What are we drinking? Beer. Again. Yep, again, beer. You know what? It's so hard to go to, like, whiskey sodas or vodka sodas when it's so effing hot out. It wouldn't be so hard for me if our ice wasn't so gross. That's true. We have. I don't know why we have weird, gross ice in the. It's like Freon. I feel like but, I'm getting cancer every time. But it's I drink from it. like a water dispenser that uses clean, crisp geyser doesn't, water. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I don't know what your problem because is. Because the refrigerator is simply cooling it by spraying Freon <laughs> on it. <laughs> Just that's how it cools it down. Yeah. So maybe we should get an ice maker. Maybe. We'll look into that. Okay. So we're drinking beer. The Kona Kona Breweries, again, they're delicious variety pack. we got like 12 cases of it. And we're I know. Trying to, we're trying to get through it. And I can't complain. I love, love me some beer, especially when it's hot out. We can't put the fans on or the AC when we're doing this podcast. So I'm just going to drink the entire time. But yeah, it's uh, pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, so what's new? What is new with us, Alex? Well, we are building out a, well, mostly you are building out a streaming beast of a machine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love and hate computers. It's giving me little problems right now. It's being a little biatch. But um, yeah, uh, going to build this out. Uh, if you follow us on Instagram, you may see a picture of it. It's, we have this sweet little, like, uh, it was a DIT uh, cart that we had, or a Video Village cart that we had purchased through one of our one of Alex's wonderful deals. I would say purchased, but we got it basically. Yeah, we didn't for even free. purchase it. No, we uh, we basically took this guy's stuff that he was getting rid of with the promise of money. We sold some of the stuff for the money we promised him, and then we kept the rest. Um, and basically, we're putting yeah, most of Alex's deals are <laughs> magic. You'll be surprised to to learn. Um, but we're putting a computer on it. Um, uh, we're putting a mixer on it. We're gonna have we have a monitor on it, and it's gonna be our little uh, mobile kind of uh, live streaming studio. Yeah, um, we we realize that we could do a lot more videos if we just don't have to worry about post production as much, and just kind of push them out by doing them live or live to tape, as they say, and just kind of get them done. Yeah, kind of like, like this podcast with no editing. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, they're going to, if there's new listeners at the beginning of this podcast, they are going to tune out very quickly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're doing some of that. And because of that, we're going to tease you guys. We're going to be doing some online workshops soon, live. Yeah, some live workshops teaching various things and stuffs about filmmaking. So, if you hate listening to us, man, are you going to really hate watching us? That's true. <laughs> We might need to get bigger TVs. Oh, man. we might not fit in them. No, no. Um, if you guys are in the 70-inch uh, projectors, that might be the start. That may be the minimum we require for our live videos. Mm-hmm. Um, what else is new? Uh, Zeph! Zeph is coming. We've, we've tweeted. We've teased it. Yeah. Zeph is in town on Thursday. He's in town on Thursday, which means he's going to be in the next episode. Not this episode that you're listening to right now. But the crazy kids, but the next one. Yes. And so we're going to interview Zeph about his film, his feature film that he made, and how he's doing Trials and tribulations of of independent filmmaking. Yes. Which we all go through and blah. So um, let's see what else. What else is new? Trevor got a new car. Well, new to me. uh, You know, got the old SUV because I was beating the hell out of my sedan uh, trying to make it an SUV and carrying stuff in it and all that. So going to put the trailer hitch on it, get some sweet trailers on it to haul more gear that we win from auctions put the seats down my favorite thing that we tried to do or did i think in your car uh-huh. was pick up two kino <sighs> kits gaffer kits yeah and from this sammy's camera yeah i don't was, know why why we didn't take because i had a truck at the time right was it because you just had so much stuff in the back of your truck that could easily be it. That could have easily been it. My favorite memory of your truck is with the hard top on the back, we picked up a 60-inch <laughs> TV that couldn't lay down because it was a plasma, yeah. and we barely made it out of the parking garage on that one. We had to keep the top up because yep. it was one that opened up, um, yeah. you know, not straight up. It was kind yeah. of like tilted. Yep. So and, we and couldn't slide the TV in all the way, so it was sticking out halfway at the back, and we had to use like a special uh, bungee cord system. To keep it. <laughs> yep. And so to pay uh, my car back for what we did to Alex's truck, uh, we decided to pick up two gaffer kits, which, if you don't know, are uh, each gaffer kit contains a ca- coffin case of two 4x4 four four, uh, Kino lights with the fixtures and the ballasts and all that. And we got two of those in my little Mazda 3. And for some reason, Alex Through didn't drive trunk. separately. No. <laughs> so he sat in the back seat while we diagonally placed them between the back, seat, back mm-hmm. driver's seat and the front passenger seat. And that was fantastic. Yeah. And then my wife got in the car and looked at it and was like, what have you done? <laughs> yeah. So no more of that. No more of that. We got, I got room now. So we're going to do some camping. We're going to do some uh, gear hauling. I'm going to get a trailer hitch on. It's going to be pretty, pretty, nice. pretty. And then nice. what else? This Monday, which will be a week ago when you guys finally hear this podcast, was Alex's birthday. Happy birthday to me. Happy thank birthday. you all. Wow, I can't believe you Happy brought them. Ber- so nice of you. I know. You guys are so kind. Wow. Um, thank you for all the gifts. Uh, he won't say it because he's modest, but I'll say thanks for all the gifts, guys. Uh, I took out the money, gave him the cards. Good to go. Yeah. Appreciate that. I love cards. Uh, we went to to a little place up in the Malibu Mountains for his... Uh, for, uh, for his birthday, uh, a little place called Malibu Cafe. After we went to the beach, there was drinking and shenanigans and an all-around good time, and everyone was feeling it on Sunday, and we were all good. Yeah, good yeah. stuff. I think that's pretty much it. That's pretty much new for us. Not not too much in the filmmaking world, but in our lives, because you guys are so interested. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's what's new. So, that's uh, what's new. So let's get on with the interview with Jason Brubaker from Distributor and Filmmaking Stuff. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. You are our official second guest on this Second podcast. guest. Missed it by one guest. You almost were the first. Almost. Uh, can we get a little bit of your background? 
Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, I'm really honored to be your second guest ever in the podcast. Wow, that's really fun. Uh, my background is, uh, well, first of all, I'm Jason Brubaker. I, I work full time in film distribution. And in fact, I've been working in film distribution for the greater part of my career. My specialty, for the most part, is domestic digital. A few years back, I kind of saw what was happening in the publishing industry. I saw what was happening in the music industry. And, you know, like a lot of people, I kind of said, well, you know, it's really only a matter of time until the same sort of thing happens in the motion picture industry. The only thing that held it back from happening sooner, uh, I think, were bandwidth restrictions. You think about a movie file versus a music file or a downloadable ebook. you know, there's, there's a significant um, amount of uh, <laughs> amount of file size needed for film. Usually it's like you know, if we're talking an uncompressed file, it's like a hundred and some gigabytes, but nonetheless, we're there now, you know, the future is now, uh, most things, as you well know, are available on demand. So you can watch whatever you want to watch when you want to watch it. And what I do day to day is I work with independent filmmakers that are looking to get into those popular marketplaces where people, the end audience congregate. Yeah, that's great. That, Sweet. That's pretty much exactly our feeling on uh, the current distribution climate. I mean, um, one of our biggest questions that we get a lot of the times with uh, in Facebook groups and forums and things like that is, can filmmakers make money in today's world? Because back in the day, like in the 80s and whatnot, there was sort of like an indie filmmaking boom with all the B-movies and stuff like that and VHS and, and then DVD and things like that. And that sort of went away for a while, but now is there going to be a new boom for indie filmmakers? Yeah, I think what's happening, I mean, there's two shifts that are taking place simultaneously. We have a lot of filmmakers right now that are forcing themselves to become entrepreneurial in their thinking. And I personally think that's the right approach. The other thing that's happening is because there's so much hype in the marketplace about Netflix and, and Netflix's domination over the subscription video on demand window you have a lot of filmmakers now that are kind of, in a way, going back to maybe how we would have thought in 1995, whereas filmmakers go into making a film and their whole concept is, I'm going to make this film and I'm going to get a Netflix deal and that deal is going to be awesome. And then I'm going to continually make Netflix projects and my career is going to be made. And it's such an interesting thing because that's exactly how I felt in the late 90s when I saw what was happening with Ed Burns and Robert Rodriguez and Kevin Smith, et cetera. You know, you saw all those guys that were quote unquote making it and, and their career and their career path was opening up for them. You know, the interesting thing though about back then versus now is back then you either made a film and got distribution. And if you got distribution, it was either a favorable deal or it wasn't, or you didn't get any distribution whatsoever and your project was a complete loss. <laughs> so there's now outlets to where you don't have to subscribe to that methodology. Yet again, oddly, I'm seeing a lot of filmmakers that are back to subscribing to that where they're thinking, oh, well, my film, I'm going to make this film and it's going to get in Netflix. And if it doesn't, well, you know, it's it just that can't happen. I'm going to get this thing into Netflix. And and then as as I'm sure you know, we're all filmmakers here, as I'm sure you can imagine, that creates a lot of disheartened people because they never fully came up with a plan B. And, and by the way, when we're talking about a release strategy, ironically, Netflix is usually the second window. You usually go transactional video on demand, then subscription video on demand, then eventually ad supported video on demand. 
So the idea that you're just creating products simply to get into Netflix, you're already, you know, eliminating one third of your earning potential right from the get go. And so, you know, I guess part of the fun and being able to share some of these thoughts with you in this podcast is maybe somebody listening to this uh, is going to say, you know what, maybe I should come up with a strategy that I control myself that's not so beholden to the third party coming along. Um, what do they call that in Greek mythology that you see in movies? Deus ex machina, yeah. God in the yep. machine, you know, somebody coming down to save you. Um, I, oddly, I think that's how a lot of filmmakers think. And anyway, I'm obviously I'm on a bandwagon here trying to prevent uh, <laughs> filmmakers from making those mistakes. No, so. which, which is awesome. So, and you had mentioned that you know people are going into the making these movies um, with this idea that I'm going to get on Netflix and everything's going to be great and my career is set and I never have to worry about finding work ever again. Um, so, when do you think is the best time for people to start thinking about distribution and not just Netflix, but like what their distribution strategy uh, will be? Is it before they even write the script? Is it you know when they're starting to put post, uh, pre-production together when they're shooting when is the best time that you recommend a filmmaker who knows that they you know don't have the wherewithal to do self-distribution when should they start putting their plan together for a distribution platform well you know i think it begins really in in the inception and you talk to different people and everybody has a different school of thought on this i I was over at a screenwriting uh, network event the other night and and one of the people on the one of the uh, gentlemen on the panel was mentioning how you shouldn't time the market you shouldn't worry about what sells and what doesn't sell you should just you know create whatever product you want to create and that's how you should work and Look, there, there's two sides of, of my response to that. On one side, I totally get it. I understand the artistic process. I understand that you want to create something for the quote unquote love. And if you do that, then because your your passion is so clean and it's an authentic piece that you're presumably creating, then you you make it and they will come. But what I've seen in the distribution side of it, and, and so this is the other thought um, in response to what he was saying, is on the distribution side of it, I would say like, 60, 70% of every filmmaker that I work with has in some ways really subscribed to the idea that if I make it, they will come. And, and ladies and gentlemen, there's an oversaturation of content in the marketplace. So if you don't give any consideration in terms of how your film's going to um, really gain some sort of notoriety when it gets to the marketplace, Again, you're doing yourself a bit of a disservice. And the last thing I'll say about that, you know, you'd mentioned that if people don't have the wherewithal to self-distribute, then what? Look, self-distribution means a lot of different things for a lot of people. And it's a very fluid definition these days. Um, I don't think it's I, I think sometimes people get the impression that when you self-distribute, you're just going out in your car and you're like shouting from the rooftops or, you know, leaning out your window of your car and being like, Hey, buy my film. I I doubt that's what you're thinking. But my my point of it is like, it really does, in my opinion, begin in the planning stage. It it begins in the story. You know, what genre are you appealing to? Because you think about it, like when you go on iTunes, you got to find a certain category of content. Where does that content reside? So you got to kind of fit in a box. And then the other big thing is like, who's in your film? You can do a lot in the way of marketing just by strategically casting your film. There's a lot of films and and you'll look for this and you'll start to see it. There's a lot of films that have up and coming Hollywood actors that are pretty good at their craft and growing. And that's coupled with, um, you know, like a famed YouTuber or social media star in secondary roles, you know? So what you're doing is you're investing in your marketing through casting. 
And, and that's nothing new, by the way. Uh, Studios have been doing that forever. And do you think, like, uh, like, are we in the age where a YouTube star is a big enough name to get some distribution out there? Um, you know, it, you know, we talk about. I know Alex used to work in distribution, and they'd throw in, you know. Not to not to besmirch his name, they throw in a Michael Madsen into a movie because he had a name at a point, and then you know he'd be there for a two day shoot, but it would have his name on there. Is is a YouTube star? Is that somebody who might be big enough to kind of uh, you know look good on a poster and get people interested in your film? I think the market's shifting in in such a way that you can create a motion picture product um, for whatever stage of your career that you're at. So I always talk about this concept of leveling up your career. That, you know, for example, a lot of people start out, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of people start out making a backyard indie as a short film and then they graduate to making a backyard indie feature film. And then that, gain, you know, through that process, they gain a lot of experience and they end up going to like the American film market and they meet some more people and they eventually meet some investors and they fund their next low budget indie. And then through that process, they meet more people, they grow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what I'm trying to get at is the marketplace actually lends itself to all those different categories of production. But in truth, if you're going to, if you're going to create a $10,000 backyard indie, you know, it, it, you're probably not, it's probably not going to look like star Wars, but (laughs) on the flip side, you have to sell a lot less units to break even. So what if Mm -hmm. you produced a hundred of those and every one of those through, you know, your careful planning, um, you didn't have, you know, the famed Hollywood actor, you didn't even have the social media star, but you had the local newscaster who always wanted to be an actor. And guess what? At the night of your premiere, you're selling, you know, um, pre-orders on iTunes and you get on the nightly news because you already built that into your casting. So from that perspective, there's a lot of value in going directly to the marketplace with and, and leveraging the popularity of whomever you cast, gotcha. whether or not that local newscaster would have international appeal. Like I don't see you selling that to a French, you know, media company or, or licensing it there because it's probably not a known enough entity to make that deal. Gotcha. Gotcha. I'm also curious in the same vein, um, nowadays with things like, uh, Facebook ads and stuff, I feel like a lot of people think that without a star, they could make a movie and get, enough eyeballs on their project or whatever through Facebook ads or something similar, YouTube ads or whatever to actually be able to sell it to the general public. Do you actually think that that is true in any sense? Um, well, I think yes and no. Again, it kind of does go back to that budget that we were talking about earlier. Um, and it kind of goes back to the types of people you're trying to attract. It's, it's broad to just kind of answer and say, yes, Facebook ads is the answer for everything. <laughs> but I'll give you an example, I think, of where this could work. Let's say that you're making a food documentary, um, which I love food documentaries. And, and I always tend to do these kinds of uh, interviews when I'm really hungry. Uh, so I'm always <laughs> talking about food. You're um, right there with us. We're, we're always hungry. So we're, we're right there with you. But let's say I'm doing a food documentary and, and it's a food documentary about eating plants. Right. And we all know that if we if I adopt a vegan lifestyle, it's going to make my health better. You know, and, and I'm not a scientist, obviously, but you see so many of these documentaries that after a while you start to say, hey, maybe I should eat some plant, uh, a plant based diet. And I think I'll be I'll feel a lot better. Um, so if I had that kind of film, what I would do is I wouldn't necessarily think about building my own audience 
I would I would identify with the audiences that are already out there that already subscribe to the belief that eating a plant based diet is the way to live. And in that process, I would identify different blogs, websites, publications, both online and offline, that also subscribe to that same notion, because each one of those publications probably has a subscriber base um, that I could then appeal to later. So in other words, the audience already exists. You just have to figure out where they congregate online. So regarding Facebook, you have a really good opportunity there in this scenario to really go after people that are into a vegan lifestyle. I'm sure there's tons of different um, people you can target on Facebook very specifically based on that alone. And then the other strategy I would use in, in, in that scenario is I wouldn't necessarily try to sell the film right away. I mean, I might. Um, but one of the tests that I'd be more inclined to, to go with right away is I would probably do some sort of downloadable thing like, hey, uh, here's here's your guide for the for the best plants uh, you should eat on a Thursday night. I, I don't know, but something like that to where somebody sees that ad in their Facebook feed, they click the link and now now it's a Facebook lead ad. So you've captured an email address and in exchange you give away this thing of value which by the way is internet marketing 101 you know the goal is is to build a strong personal relationships with people in, in a massive way um, so what i done what what you do in that scenario then is you grab the email address and now you start building the relationship by presenting value and instead of thinking about just selling your one film now your film just becomes a product that appeals to that person that's really into that kind of thought process that's into the clean you know, uh, plant-based diet lifestyle. And so that's what I think about when I, when I talk about Facebook ads, the way most people do it is they'll just spend a whole bunch of money and try to, you know, be like, buy my movie, <laughs> yeah. which I think yeah. very rarely works. Yeah. So you're almost like uh, pre proving the fact that people want what you've made by offering them something in a similar vein for free that they have to actively download. And then you go about selling them after the fact. Exactly right. Because I always think about it this way, you know, people and, and by the way, it's taken me like a decade to learn this. And, and, and I know you guys know me from my blog and all that kind of stuff. But when I was first starting out, even with my blog at filmmaking stuff, um, you know, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to tell you this, but I I made all the dumb mistakes that any entry level marketer makes. I'm like, I'm doing an email blast, you know. I don't think that way anymore. Like I, I still sometimes talk about email blast, but it's such a cold, stupid way to go about what you're really doing. What what you're really intending to do with anything you create is is just build relationships and present value to people that are looking for what it is that you have, right? So in, in the case of the food documentary, your your value is saying like, hey, you subscribe to this belief system. I subscribe to this belief system. I really think you're going to gain something from downloading this thing. And then that person's like, oh, wow, this was really cool. And then two weeks later when you're like, oh, my gosh, I wanted to tell you I'm making this film and it's going to go live on iTunes. But here's the link. You can pre-order it. Well, now now you kind of have that relationship and people are more inclined to say, oh, yeah, I trust this person because they're helping me solve this problem. Yeah, no, that, yeah. That, I think that's great advice because I think a lot of people don't even know where to start about advertising. Facebook is so great with it, being able to really nail down a market of who you want to uh, kind of approach. But the fact that you can get people involved and they feel like almost you're part of the community and you're doing it for the community, I think, really helps people 
kind of get over the idea of I'm just going to throw this out into the into the wind and see if anybody likes it. Yeah. Steve Yu, he's a, he's a producer. He did um, The Resurrection of Jake the Snake. Uh, I, I work at a company called Distributor, and we help distribute that film. And, and it was successful. It went number one in iTunes in four countries. But one of the things that Steve Yu did that I'm so impressed by is anytime there was social media mention, mention of the film, he would personally go out and respond to everybody in, in social media channels. And so he was personally building goodwill and relationships. And if you think about, you know, that approach, which is humble and kind versus what you see most filmmakers do, which is, again, buy my movie, buy my movie. Yeah. You know, you immediately just know from from even me relaying this that instinctually people don't want that. They don't want you to be like, buy my stuff, buy my stuff. It, that just doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. I think uh- – Another question for you, just kind of on the, the more technical side, I think. Uh, you mentioned earlier um, some of the distribution windows. Yes. And I'm wondering, um, I think a lot of filmmakers starting out especially don't really know a whole lot about distribution at all, but especially distribution windows. How important are distribution windows, do you think, um, for someone doing um, their own DIY uh, distribution strategy versus someone who obviously is trying to get like a sales agent and stuff like that. Well, in both instances, whether or not you're doing it yourself or you're working with a sales agent or like the third scenario where you might do domestic uh, digital yourself, but you might use an international sales agent to handle any, any of the different opportunities overseas in some of those territories, you're still going to have to follow some sort of windowing type scenario. I mean, especially if you're doing a hybrid deal because you're going to have to coordinate with your sales agent to make sure that your that your decision process is not going to skunk any of uh, her deals overseas, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. With that in mind, whenever I talk to a filmmaker, and this kind of goes back to the humor I was I was sharing at the beginning, but whenever somebody comes to me and they're like, "I want to get on Netflix," usually I say, "Well, what's your what's your goals for distribution? What's your strategy?" I want to get on Netflix, and then that, that's where the conversation stops. <laughs> um, and, and so I usually just to, and I've been doing this for a while, so I kind of know the responses, but I usually say something in response like, well, all right, well, what's your plan for TVOD? And at that point, it's usually crickets because you hear the terminology TVOD, which is an abbreviation for transactional video on demand. And when you hear crickets, what that tells me from a distribution perspective is I, I need to help educate this person. Yeah. Um, so when you say like how important is windowing, whether it's DIY or working with somebody, uh, again, it's vitally important because when we talk about windowing, what we're really saying is we want to release your film strategically so that you can maximize revenue. And and let me just put it another way just to kind of show you that it doesn't matter whether or not you're distributing your film yourself or if you're working uh, with a distributor, et cetera. Um, my wife and I, over the, over the holiday season, um, were trying to find National Lampoon's Christmas vacation. And I'll kind of quiz you guys here just to, uh, just to maybe, I don't know if you like that movie or not, but, but let's Definitely. say that you oh, were in that situation classic. you were looking for that film. You like that one? Oh, oh yeah. man. Yeah. Yep. Every year. Well, and it, and it was funny to, right. Every year. And it was funny because we had the DVD, but it rolled around the technology evolved. We had no way to play the DVD. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think I still have an old PlayStation two or three just to, to play DVDs. Cause I have like six of them still. Well, let me quiz you guys. If, if you were in that situation, where's the first place you would go to find that film? 
I probably go to Amazon. Yeah, I go video to, on demand. I'd go to then I go to Netflix, but they don't have it. I know that for a fact. Then I'd probably go to TBS or TNT because they always play those movies. Um, yeah, I don't know if I know of a streaming service or a place that I mean. I would assume I could probably rent it on Amazon or iTunes, but that or Google Play or Google Play. But that's just a crapshoot, and I've never looked it up there either. All right. Well, well, well. In truth, I'm I'm asking like two filmmaker guys and <laughs> with the background of distribution and that kind of stuff. So, so let me. Um, I don't know. Let me just say how I did it. The first place I looked was Netflix, which I think is where most people look. Yep. And with the idea that if it's there and I can just watch it for quote unquote free, I know I'm paying a monthly subscription, but I can watch whatever I want to watch. That that's one of the most convenient places to go, and that that kind of goes full circle back to why I think a lot of filmmakers are focused on Netflix because most of their parents and relatives, et cetera, are saying, when's your film going to be on Netflix? Because <laughs> that's what, yep. that's what a lot of the public knows, but it wasn't on Netflix. So, and we really wanted to see it. So what we ended up doing was we went to Amazon and it wasn't available on Amazon prime, which again is similar to Netflix, but a little bit different. So we ended up paying for this film that we already had. <laughs> so you're watching yeah. the film while holding the DVD in your hand. <laughs> Exactly right. But, but the <laughs> there, you know, if we're looking at windowing strategy, had that film been in an SVOD window, we would have never gone back to TVOD and paid for it. Right. Yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And so think about your own release strategy the same way. If somebody can watch your film for free, who the heck's going to pay for it? Great point. I think a lot of people just look at Netflix as like, well, you know, it's validation for me. Like they're not thinking about you know, the end game of like, well, if I can get more people to pay for it, there, a lot of people these days just see, look at Netflix as I made it. You know, it's one of those, it's the yeah. new, it's the new theater. You know, everyone back, even in our day when we were in film school, was like, I just can't wait to get my movie played, you know, in a big theater with a big screen. And nowadays, everyone we talk to is like, I just, oh man, I can't wait to get my movie on Netflix so so many people can see it around the world. And they don't stop and think that, well, yeah, you know how much you get paid, you know, for that Netflix and it doesn't matter how many people watch it and then they could you know, end the streaming on it whenever they want. Well, it's also Netflix has become a verb almost too. So I think a lot of people just associate it in general with watching a movie on via the internet. And they don't really think about the fact that it's, it is different than a transactional, um, VOD situation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you guys, you guys are right on point with that. And, and I think, um, I think I, I think it would be wise for us to just talk about transactional video on demand and the opportunities there. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, absolutely. I, and I've been trying to think about this too because because I really want filmmakers to think about the TVOD window. Most there, there's a reason why most distributors and most entrepreneurial filmmakers that really think about their strategy go first and foremost into transactional video on demand. Uh, aside from everything else, a lot of people would love to be able to pay their bills and afford a family just based on making films alone. And so to your point, sometimes those deals in, in like uh, subscription video on demand, sometimes there's a Netflix deal. That's not that great of a deal. And, and what are you going to do? Take that deal. So yeah. transactional video on demand, the first stop, I would say in a very bare bones strategy, you just got to figure out how many units do I need to sell to hit my goal? Right. And so if we, if, we, if we recognize that a platform like iTunes or Google Play, which is a 70-30 split for purchases, so if you sell it for 10 bucks, that means that you're going to get to retain $7. Yeah. 
what I like to do is I like to take and I like to say, all right, well, how much would it take me to make a hundred thousand dollars um, net on on uh, iTunes, for example, seventy thirty split. So all I do is I take a hundred thousand, and everybody listening to this can do the same thing. Pull out your phone calculator, type in one hundred thousand, then hit divide divided by seven, because you're going to get seven dollars out of every ten, assuming you sell it for ten. So that means that you have to move 14,286 units. I'm rounding up 14,286 units to make $100,000. And at that point, that's daunting. But it also raises the most important question that filmmakers never ask, aside from how many units do I have to sell? The most important question filmmakers have to ask is, geez, how the heck am I going to move 14,000 plus units? And in truth, I don't know. But... By asking that question, it's going to force you to come up with creative answers. And it's a heck of a lot better than saying like, gee, I hope I get it into Netflix because Netflix isn't a strategy. Netflix is a lottery ticket, just like 1995. Gee, I hope I get distribution. Come on, guys. So what we do once we start asking that question about how do I move 14,000, uh, what did I say, 14,287 units or whatever, Yeah. Uh, 14,286 units, what, what you start doing at that point, if you really force yourself to start answering that question, uh, we'll go back to that food documentary. You might say, oh, my gosh, I could reach out to that, that awesome food documentary or, or that awesome vegan blog and that, all, that plant-based diet blog and that other blog about plant-based. Oh, and here's this other environmental website. It's not quite a good fit, but I know they're really into sustainable farming. And, and you start putting together all these different uh, publications, both online and offline, and you say, oh, my gosh. If, if I could even get like a small percentage of all the people that congregate around these publications through email blasts and social shares and doing podcasts, much like we're doing tonight, uh, imagine how many people you start to reach. And suddenly it's not 14,000 units you're moving. Now, now you're moving 1,000 there, 100 there, 50 units there, 40 units there, 60 units over there. And what you're doing is you're working backwards. And if you actually take a weekend to come up with that very simple strategy, then things start to open up for you. Now you have a distribution strategy, which makes you powerful to distributors because every distributor wants to work with a filmmaker that can potentially get them money. So a filmmaker with a plan is less risky, right? So that's one way to think about it. Or for those of you that are still out there raising money and you get investors that are saying like, well, how much you know, can I potentially make? And uh, how's the film gonna make money? And what's your sales strategy? Well, if you go back to the investor and say, well, we might get it into Netflix, that, that's kind of a very soft response versus, uh, hey, take a look at this, um, you know, this uh, sales projection formula that I came up with. If we sell 14, we need to sell 14,286 units. And, and here's exactly how we're going to do it. We're going to go here, here, here and here and here. And I'm going to just assume a very conservative estimate for each one of those destinations. Well, again, now you're starting to have a solid strategy. Yeah, I know every time I talk about like math, everybody's eyes glaze over, but this is the formula. You know, this is what you got to do when people are saying like, I I need video on demand sales projections. Nobody shares their numbers. It's not that they're not sharing their numbers. It's that we've entered a direct to consumer paradigm. It's no longer going to blockbuster video and selling 10,000 units of your film. It's going out in the marketplace and trying to figure out how to sell 14,286 sales on a digital platform. 
So it's a little bit different. Yeah, and you I, guys really got me. I'm on a soapbox or something. I'm really <laughs> no. This is this is this is fantastic because I think the biggest problem that we run into when we talk to young filmmakers or indie filmmakers is that it's kind of what you went back to before. Is like this is my passion project. I just want to make it and then I'll figure it out later how it's going to make money. And I think the I what you're saying about like you need to sit down and come up with your plan before and really put it down in numbers. And yeah. Filmmakers hate math. I hate math. I just, you know what? That's why I have a calculator and I ask Alex to do the big numbers. But, um, <laughs> like, if you don't sit down and actually have a plan laid out, and rather it's just going to be, well, I'm just, I'll distribute it when it's done, or I'll get a sales agent. You know, easy as that. Um, then you're really going to be stuck with a, 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 I would say, a bill almost that you can't really pay off because you have this film that you work so hard on, and nobody's ever going to see it because you have no idea how you're going to get it out there because you didn't plan for it ahead of time. Yeah. And speaking to that too, do you have any resources or any advice for people on how to start thinking a little bit more entrepreneurially? Um, how can they sort of start shifting in that direction? Well, in terms of resources, I do have a, have a blog uh, that I write in frequently. It's called Filmmaking Stuff. And you can visit it at filmmakingstuff.com. I have all sorts of different educational programs that I put together as well. Um, and, and you'll find out more about that. I, I would think just go to filmmakingstuff.com, start reading some of the articles. And if you like some of the stuff I, you know, that I talk about, um, then, you know, feel free to join my own, uh, newsletter and get to know me and I'll get to know you a bit more. Uh, but you know, I, what I dig about all this stuff is, and I'm kind of going full circle and to bookend our conversation, you think back to the late nineties when, when we had that whole wave of filmmakers, and there was just nothing you could do if a distributor didn't come along and pick up your film. At that point, you were just you made a product that there was just nothing to do with it. And I can't imagine I, I wasn't making films quite then. I was inspired back then, but I wasn't making films then. I can't imagine like how disheartening that must have been versus these days where it's like, yeah, I made a film um, and sure, it doesn't appeal to everybody. But I bet I could go out and I bet because there's a global marketplace out there, I bet I could find enough people to help me, you know, make some sales and move units and actually learn a few things. I just think the opportunities that we have right now are unlike any time in history. And, and for that matter, I, I think it's one of the best times to become a filmmaker. Well, that's awesome. awesome. Uh, we don't want to keep you anymore. We know you're in a rush, but thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and give us all of your knowledge, all of your wonderful uh, gems bits of uh, knowledge gems. Yeah. It was absolutely my pleasure, guys. Thanks so much for having me. And just to, to, to clarify, it is filmmakingstuff.com where they can get all a lot more information than you talked about today. Is that correct? Absolutely. Fantastic. All right, so hopefully that interview was uh, appreciated by many of you. Uh, Jason has a lot of good stuff. He's been doing this for a long time. Um, I think he is kind of... If you got anything from that uh, interview, it should be that he's kind of realizing and the industry is realizing that indie filmmakers and there are kind of the forefront of a new distribution model. You know, there's still the regular distribution, but those are a lot of blockbusters. Um, and so there's a new kind of uh, wave of, of video on demand. You know. Filmmakers trying to take. The filmmaking and distribution process into their own hands, which exactly. I think is pretty cool. Exactly, and that's the kind entrepreneurial of what... spirit of filmmakers, which is what actually attracted me to filmmaking to begin with. Yeah, and so you gotta, you know, you gotta look at the business side of it all and keep that in mind. So hopefully, you got some tips and tricks that uh, Jason told you about. That and, uh, 
Go yeah. ahead. Keep going, Alex. Oh, yes. We had I mean, a ton of Fine. questions to ask him. We didn't even like scratch the surface. We'll have to have him back we'll on. We'll have to have him back because, I mean, what a knowledgeable fellow. Yeah, maybe we'll have him in studio. He can have a beer with us. He can sweat it out in our <laughs> sauna. We're going to have to wait until it's winter before we bring guests in here. Oh, poor Zeph. Oh, except New York, I hear, is boiling, so yeah, it may not be that bad for him. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so what's cool, Alex? What is cool in the world of filmmaking? What's cool? All right. Well, I just heard about uh, a new thing called the light camera. Well, actually, I'd heard about it before because it came out in 2017, I think. Yeah. The, the L16 is what it was. It was kind of their pilot product or whatever. And it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, an interesting camera that uh, has a different method for taking pictures and video than a standard camera. And um, it has like... 16 different lenses, 16 different sensors, something like that, that yeah. combined to create a 52 megapixel it's camera. A, it's a weird looking thing. It's weird. It looks like a mobile phone. Yeah. Uh, but the idea being, I think, that you don't necessarily, like, it eliminates the need to carry around multiple lenses yeah. and, and stuff like that, which is interesting. Now, and they're expanding upon that with new products and stuff like that. Yeah, now, now looking over it, what you'll notice is um, they have, it, it looks really weird. It looks like a bunch of lenses all lined up. And what it does is it's mostly used for photography and it takes pictures with each lens simultaneously and then stitches them together to kind of make like a new age HDR picture. And then for video, it can't use all the lenses at the same time, but what it does is it allows you to switch between lenses without actually physically switching lenses, which is really cool. That's really cool. Yeah, um, that is cool. And they, I'm hoping that they'll come up with some new products in the future if it catches on. I mean, yeah. Leica just invested in them big time. Yeah. So maybe they'll come think, up with some more like cinematic uh, uses for it, which could be interesting for the low-budget yeah. peeps who don't necessarily want to like carry around a ton of kit. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and uh, you know, they look like they were doing a kind of a dash cam a dash game, yeah. yeah, and I think they've raised over 150 million, so they better be coming out with something sweet, something cool. So, time Let's to start making it. that money back. Let's see it, like camera. All right, what else do we got? Uh, for me, uh, I don't know. Alex just put me onto this: the Overlord trailer. Yes, the Overlord trailer. Uh, it's a new movie produced by J.J. Abrams, and it's basically a zombie movie set in World War II. Pretty cool. I am I am stoked for it. I love me a good zombie movie. I love me a well done zombie movie. Yes. I love me some historical action war movies. Yeah. Um. There seems to be a kind of a rash of, uh, not a rash. A rash. Uh, uh, wow, wow. Wow. It is hot. Chafing. Um. There. There seems to be a large amount. It's kind of like a resurgence of historical horror films. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's. I also said because there's also a trailer for a movie called Cold Skin about like creatures from. Uh, Atlantis coming up to a lighthouse in, I would say, the 1700s. I mean, yeah, I don't even, I don't, I don't, don't even know. know. Yeah, but you know, I, here's the thing: is like, some would say it's cheating, but I think it's. I love the fact that like, you can do a movie in a historical era and, and you can get away with more things. Like now, it's like, oh, you have a cell phone, why don't you just call somebody? You have this, this, this. So it's, there's so many outs. But back then, you can write it where it's like, well, guess what? They didn't have cell phones back then. They didn't have phones, so it's not as easy to be like, well, let's just call this, let's get a cell phone and then they're saved. That kind of stuff. I, I like historical horror films because I think it's sometimes harder to, to make them believable. Yeah. I mean, I, I love horror films in general. Yep. I'm not as big of a zombie fan oh, just because I feel like they get pretty tired, but this one looks pretty sweet. I'm not going to lie. Um, but yeah, I do think the, the lack of technology and being in an already pretty intense situation yeah, but 
adding the extra intensity of zombies, flesh-eating, yeah. brain-wanting zombies. Yum, yum. We don't know if they want brains. They may just want they to attack. They all do, Trevor. I know, they but these are do. these are lab-created zombies, so they may be a little different, okay? I don't know. Okay. They all right. Brains. We'll just let it go. What um, do we want? What brains. Else? When do we want them? Brains. Brains. <laughs> <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. Um, what else oh, you got? So I just heard about these the other day. Intellitech, uh-huh. which is a cool company that makes a lot of LED light products like the Punch and Jab series that mm. are really powerful LEDs that kind of like uh, replace HMIs in a sense, you know? Yeah. They just came out with a product called Light Cloth. Oh. Which is really interesting. I know um, there's a lot of different... Similar type products like light mats out there. Mm-hmm. Westcott has the flex lights and stuff like that. Yeah. But this one, um, I don't know. I, I really like this. I mean, I like all of them because they're all very handy and mm-hmm. lightweight and small. Yeah. And you can do all sorts of crazy stuff with them, like gaff tape them to the ceiling and stuff. They are crazy. But I like this one a lot. It, it seems um, extra powerful. You know, they've, okay. they've got different configurations of it. One that... Um, is a two by two size, and they all come with modifiers like um, little soft boxes. But the two by two, you can also buy an extra bracket and use two of them together to create Ooh. a two by four. That's crazy. Which is pretty big. They're powerful and they're bicolor and still lightweight. They fold up. Each one of them folds up I mean, into a little one by one yeah, thing. That's crazy. And they're not that expensive. A, a, a they're not. Two panel set is only $1,900. Yeah. That's not crazy. It's not crazy. No. And they're pretty, they're pretty powerful too. I mean, they're not, um, you know, they're not killing out any sunlight really yeah. like in broad daylight, but they'll get the um, job done. They'll get the job done for sure. Um, on that note, I kind of have a, something similar. It's called FMV. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of them. They're like, Company. Film and video. Film and video. Yep. And they're, uh, they're coming out with a light panel Astra competitor. Oh, um, really? Oh, I yeah. think I saw that. What's the K4000s? Oh, maybe that's not the one I saw. So the K4000s are kind of like the, uh, there's a bicolor and then there is, I believe, a daylight. And they are um, one by one fixtures, kind of like the Astras. Um, they are, of course, bicolor. You know, this whole CRI 93 to 97, like everyone else does. Um, and they are, like, so the K4000 is um, at. Three meters is eleven hundred lux. Okay. Why the Astra is nine hundred lux. Interesting. Now, now the Astra has multiple different iterations at this point. Yes. So is that just like the original Astra? It's the Astra three X by color. Okay. So that's what they there, and then um, the four thousand S is a little bit less powerful than the Astra six X by color. So the the Astra 6X puts out 1500 while the KS uh the K4000S puts out 1034 but you got to remember these things are 30% cheaper than than the light panel Astras. So That's very interesting. And I just also saw that they have the K8000. Yes, yes. Which is like a 1x2 size mm-hmm. light panel type deal. Yep, and so film and video not too scabby. I mean, it may not, not be scary. your first name in LED lighting, but yeah, man, they have a looks like a CRI of ninety, yeah, which is not the best out there, but it's also not the worst. I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, you, you get what you pay for. For I mean, the K four thousand, yeah, price, I th- price point for I sure. I think the K four thousand, which is a smaller, and I think it's the newer one, but they shrank it down a little bit. I think they're they're touting ninety three to ninety seven, or as they like to say, ninety five plus minus two. Very interesting. Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Hmm. Not the most powerful things in the world, but uh, probably a little bit cheaper consideration for people if they're on a budgie. Not bad. Yeah, not, not, I don't hate it. I'd, I'd check them out. Um, anything else that's super cool? Well, the last thing I, I um, saw was the Castle Rock series. You know, they've I'm been teasing. They've been teasing the trailer on yeah. Hulu every time I watch stuff. Yep. And uh, it looks very interesting to me. I really, really want to see it. I'm very excited about it. Me too. It. Um, I would definitely say check out that trailer if you haven't if you haven't seen it, and uh, hopefully it'll come out. Pretty soon. You know what's funny is that I saw somebody watch the trailer and they still didn't really kind of get what's going on. Um, for those who don't kind of get it, Castle Rock is kind of the fictitious town that Castle Rock, Maine, that a lot of Stephen King uh, stories take place in. And so, in this iteration of Castle Rock, all of Stephen King's ideas take place in this town. So, like a mysterious stranger comes, and then there's you know Cujo happens, and uh, right. you can go check out the Shawshank, Shawshank prison and all that. So in this world, it's like all of Stephen King's most popular stories merged into one world. Yeah, it looks cool. I, interesting. I, I'm interested to see what like they do with it. The first three episodes are out on July 25th. Yeah, yeah. Which so, is at this point in time tomorrow. Oh my gosh! Very that's exciting. right. Oh my gosh! That's right. I'll check them out. Yeah, definitely. Oh, definitely. Um, I, I think that's it for everything that's cool, huh? What do you I else? think that's it. All right, everyone. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for joining us. Make sure to get the show notes for this episode by visiting nobudgetfilmmaking.com slash episode 15. And as always, don't forget to hop on over to iTunes and subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already. While that, you're there, give us a five-star rating. Oh, my gosh. So inclined. Please do. We haven't had a five-star rating in a while, guys. I know. We're falling behind. I know. Um, just also want to give out one more shout out to Jason Brubaker for joining us today and make sure you visit his website filmmakingstuff.com he's got a lot of interesting information on there for filmmakers especially about distribution and making your film and stuff like that and if you have a project that you are considering distribution for or you're about to start a project check out Distriber and see what they have to offer very cool stuff going on over there yep 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 and if you have any filmmaking questions ask away in the comments section and we will try to answer them to the best of our feeble knowledge yep Yep. and then last but not least like our facebook page follow us on instagram at cinema summit and we shall check you out next time if we don't die from the heat bye bye